Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Well, I got several things, but, but I'll just ask one. Okay, uh, the ancient Mesopotamian goddess, uh, Ishtar, yeah, mm-hmm. she was both the goddess of love and war, which which seems to me very strange, because we usually think of love as being feminine, war as being masculine, uh, but there seems to be that, that there was a sort of a tie there between the war and love. Can, can you explain it? <laughs> I don't know whether I can explain it, but I can certainly riff off it. And the, the question is that the ancient Mesopotamian goddess Ishtar was in fact the goddess of both love and war. And in our understanding, those two things are very separate. And asking if I can explain or at least comment on why those two things might be together. And with the caveat that I don't know the answer to this, so I'm just making it up. (laughs) You know, those are both about powerful, primary parts of humanity. And at some level, we often, particularly when women go to war, often going to war has been tied to love. Like I said, I'm just making it up. I don't know, but that's the best I've got for you. Um, and, and also just the fact that different cultures do have different ideas about these things, and I don't know a whole lot about ancient Mesopotamia. <laughs> we have another. Uh, thank you very much for being here, Dr. Tola. This is a really great discussion. Um, the question that I have is, in your study of the historiography, Um, especially when looking at individual women. Have you found that historians tend to overemphasize the masculine elements of a female warrior and kind of underplay the, I guess, the feminine aspects? Have you found that there's this, like, over-masculinization of individual women warriors? Okay, this is a great question, which is whether in the historiography, historians or even the people who are writing the original evidence have tended to emphasize masculine aspects of women warriors, and I guess the answer is sometimes. You really get a, some, some very basic tropes about women warriors. There's, there is one that a wonderful writer called Antonia Fraser described as the tomboy syndrome, the idea that this woman warrior wasn't a girl like other girls, and she loved these masculine pursuits, and she's usually encouraged in it by her father. So she grows up ready to function as if she were a man. You get the flip side of that, and you get other women warriors who are castigated for being sexually driven. So I guess the, you, you either get a description of women warriors as not interested in sex at all or really, really interested in sex, and some of the ones who are on the, the sexual end of the range are almost hyper-feminized in the descriptions. Um, basically, if you're a woman warrior, 
anywhere before the 19th century. As far as the evidence is concerned, you can't win, is the bottom line. <laughs> So thank you for your talk. It's wonderful. Thank you. Um, I wonder if in your book or if you can speak to how the accounts either by women or men following these battles in the episodes treat the women warriors. Do they treat it as, oh, this was an aberration brought on by whoa, siege? Or was there acknowledgment of these are career military women? And again, the question is whether in the accounts women who fight are treated as an aberration or whether they are acknowledged as career military women. I would say for the most part in the sources, they are often treated as an aberration. There is always a tendency to, to say it's really unusual that a woman did this. Um, and they may think that's wonderful and they may think it's awful. There are a few exceptions to that. There are a few cases where um, there's a woman who disguised herself as a man in 1815 and fought in the, the Russian army. I can't, sometimes I felt like everybody fought in the Russian army. Um, but she fought for 10 years and she even continued to be able to fight after the Tsar found out she was there. He allowed her to continue to fight on the grounds that she continue to be in disguise. And the stories about her are clearly treated as this is a woman for whom this was a job, this was a career, this was a passion. Um, you get some more ancient ones. Um, for instance, Alexander the Great had a half-sister, an older half-sister, whose mother was from this general Scythian area and had in fact been a warrior herself. She trained her daughter to fight and that daughter, Kinane, led troops under her father, and nobody says this is an aberration. Um, that's just, this is another example of this Scythian connection, these women who fight. So there are cases where they don't treat it as an aberration, but for the most part, it is treated as very unusual. All right, perhaps this is more of a macro level question, and it might be better to just like audit a course on gender studies 101. But how did we like get to this point where now we have to dig so deep for these stories? Like, what happened through all of these cultures where these were like hidden or not valued at the time, or like was it just not valued at the time and it just kind of continued onwards or were these stories like deliberately taken away from history or what are what's your sense on that okay. generally so th this, this is why why don't we know these stories um partially we don't know these stories because we don't ask those questions but also typically historical evidence has been written by men who have not necessarily thought what women did was important. So that's part of it. Part of it is evidence gets lost. You know, the, the, real, the real enemy of knowing what happened is time, bugs, and fire. And so evidence gets lost, and the stuff that people try really hard to save, again, is the stuff that the people who are the curators think is important. Um, and yet, the information shows up. It shows, sometimes it shows up attached to the story of a man. 
I mean, we probably wouldn't know about Kinane if she weren't the daughter of Philip of Macedon and the big sister of Alexander the Great. Um, so it's, it's been a combination of a lot of things, but it, it really boils down to what did the people who made the records think was important. Uh, well, you might be uh, interested in knowing that there's a recent novel uh, published which draws upon your Scythian uh, material, and the unfortunate downside is written by a man. You know, that, that happens. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, I'll, I'll get one of your books. I, I know the man, so I'll, I'll uh, get one of your books and share it with him. What's the name of the novel, just out of curiosity? The name of the novel is, let's see, it's, it's uh, Deli Delivered to the Ground. Okay. And it's, it's, a, it's fiction. Uh, it requires a little time travel, so there's a little bit of science fiction in it, too. Okay. So, if anyone's interested, there's a novel out there that, in fact, deals with some of the Scythian sources. So, good. Uh, thank you for this talk. It's been fascinating to hear. And I'm kind of curious. Um, so, it sounds like there have been few accounts where there have been uh, warrior women that have been encountered for and their deeds have been talked about. Um, I'm curious on how they were talked about, if they were kind of given the same details, if they were talked in the same way as their male counterparts, if other, if other uh, accomplishments were kind of either uh, looked at more or less, or if, like, uh, there, if anything kind of was differentiated between the two. Okay. So the question is, the women that we do know about, how does their treatment compare to the treatment of their male counterparts? Again, it really varies tremendously. Um, for instance, there's a woman named Ethelflaed, who was the daughter of Alexander the Great and who helped push the Vikings out of England. The major sources from that period are from the perspective of her brother, Edward the Elder, who in fact became the king of England. And they don't mention the fact that she led armies or that an entire Danish town surrendered not to him but to her. Or they don't even give her title, which was the Lady of the Mercians. They only mention her as Ethel Fled, as Edward's sister. The only reason we know about her is there is a fragment of a document from the region, Mercia, where she was, that tells the story from the Mercian perspective. And it's really the account of three women, Ethelflaed, her mother, and her daughter, who kind of disappears from the picture after her death. Um, she does not succeed her mother, and we don't really know what Edward did to her to have that happen. So it really depends on the woman. Sometimes we have very little. I mean, there are some women who we know their name and we have one sentence about what they did, and that's it. I realize it's not a very useful answer. So many of the answers are, it depends. And there's a reason you don't get whole 
books about some of these women because for some of these women there just isn't enough information to write a full biography. Um, it seems like one of the famous women warrior stories are the Amazons, at least in the feminist world. Mm -hmm. And um, what can you tell us about that? I mean, is it a story? Is there any historical evidence? Or There's actually increasing historical evidence that Herodotus wasn't just making it all up, though he certainly made up some of the more salacious details. But these women, the Scythians, etc., are in the area that Herodotus tells us the Amazons came from. And there is increasing evidence that suggests that there was a historical basis for that story. And if that's something anyone is interested, I strongly recommend Adrian Mayer's book, The Amazons, which looks at ancient women warriors and carefully looks at the Amazon story and how it fits with the archeological evidence. Fabulous book. Can you tell us, um, you've talked about the bravery of these women, uh, are there any, uh, is there any evidence of um, recognition of um, women strategists uh, who, who actually planned uh, campaigns, or did they never reach that level? Oh, no, there, there absolutely were women who did that. Uh, Matilda of Tuscany, clear point. Um, you may not think of her in these terms, but Isabella of Castile did a lot more than fund Christopher Columbus. She actually organized much of the battle that the um, Spanish undertook against the Moors driving them out of Spain. Um, she very seldom actually went into battle herself, though now and then she did, but she, she was the person who planned those campaigns from beginning to end on a large scale, even down to how many men does this town need to send and what weapons do they need to send. Interestingly enough then, her daughter, the first wife of Henry VIII, ends up running a campaign herself, having learned at her mother's heels. Um, when Henry goes abroad to fight in Europe, Mary ends up having to organize the campaign to keep the Scots from invading. And she, in fact, is prepared to lead troops into battle but they are defeated when she is about a day away. What role do you think religion plays in us not knowing about a lot of these women warriors? Uh, she's asked what role do I think women, religion plays in us not knowing about women warriors? And my personal opinion is a great deal. <laughs> Um, I think that with Christianity, we had some changes in beliefs in what women should and should not do. I think that that did affect how we see those. And there, but also with the passage of time, the, the other thing that seems to have changed is the creation of the modern European military, which both 
took women out of the field support roles that they had played that gets it gets lumped under the phrase camp followers, which we tend to think of as prostitutes. But in fact, there were large numbers of women who followed the early modern European armies that basically provided support services. As the armies become more professional in the 18th century, the number of women who are allowed to do that becomes much smaller. And at the same time, you start to get military historians, and their first role is trying to present an education that will teach military leaders how to lead a campaign. And since they're not asking the questions that, that give us these women, women fall out of military history at that point as well. So not just religion, but it is true. I do personally believe that that plays a role. We have one more question here. We have one in the back first. Okay. I just wanted to know how many languages you had to research because that to me is like, oh, All right, I, I will tell you the absolute greatest challenge to writing a global history is that it is indeed global. And that means it is impossible to know all of the languages. So you are limited to the languages you personally can read. In my case, that's German, French, and Spanish which makes doing ancient Greece, Russia, China, Japan, you're, you're dependent on the work of other scholars who have done amazing things. All right, was there? It seems to me that in, in the stories that you're talking about in even current times, one of the largest obstacles, it feels to me, is stereotypes in the fact that war is associated with masculine. So how can a female be engaged in a war without being labeled as masculine qualities or feminine qualities, as well as since war has been more masculine, more patri we come from patriarchal societies, that if a female, any female that wants to uh, partake in war has to, in a sense, swim up river and for the ones that change their dress in order to fit, you know, to hide their, the fact that they're females, how many of them died? Um, and we don't even know about it. But I also see like in our current, our current state of, you know, females in the military or even females in any high role, it's really hard to, to be a female if we only have masculine and feminine stereotypes to, you know, to rely on? Um, this is really a question about how women in powerful positions or women in any traditionally male endeavor are able to function with only male um, ideas. And I think it requires creativity and imagination and guts and stubbornness and and it gets it has gotten better certainly in my lifetime there are many times at which i have been the first woman to do something um, some of those things weren't very big somethings but still every one of them caused a bubble my youngest sister is 12 years younger than i am she did some of those things same things and 
no one even mentioned it. So it changes. Women kick open doors. Women will keep kicking open doors. And you don't have to not be female to kick open a door. <laughs> thank you. Let's thank our speaker again. One of the things we talked about at the midday session was the implications or what happens when women are written out of the story of battle and defending the home and defending the nation. Then they're saying, well, if they're not defending the nation, what's their role in peacemaking or what's their role in diplomacy or how could they be president? And so there are deep implications for lost history that go on and on. And this whole year, Global Minnesota is doing a series of programs on women as global leaders, including a Supreme Court justice from Ethiopia and many others. So I urge you to get more information in the back. Um, getting the conversation about women's role leading at the global level includes everything from defending the home to defending the planet and everything in between. I want to also thank you for the giving of one of your books to Carol Jordan. To thank the folks here at the Friends of the Hennepin County Library and to make sure it's in our library here. But I urge all of you to buy a book in the back, get it signed, read it, start telling the stories, and start being part of uh, this whole conversation to help our whole community know this amazing story. Thank you again. Thank you.